Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Edge. Um, today, we're very, very happy to have another guest on the show. Uh, Mr. Derek Smith is joining us today. Um, Derek, as, as always, the first question is always going to be, please kind of give the, our listeners a bit of an introduction, a bit of background on you and kind of how you got into the industry. Um, all right. I got into the industry at the ripe age of six years old. Um, my dad bought me and my brother a custom made PC from like a local PC shop, uh, ran Windows 3.1, Solitaire, Minesweeper, you, you know, the works. Um, and and that, that's honestly where it started. I started taking that thing apart, putting it back together, um, installing software on, on 3.1. And then obviously, you know, 95, 98, 98 SE, NT 4.0. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, uh, on up. So yeah, honestly, that's that's where I started. It was six years old. Uh, but professionally, um, I got really my first real job uh, working at my high school when I was sixteen. I was helping out with their help desk, uh, doing you know basic password resets, troubleshooting, you know things that went on with Windows XP and and what whatnot. And then worked my way up to. Um, working for a, a local tribal government in California where I lived at the time doing their network uh, administration. So Cisco routers, Cisco ASA, all that sorts of good stuff. So spent the first probably half a decade um, doing everything Cisco, getting really good at Cisco, branching out to some of the other checkpoint, Palo Alto, Fortinet, that sort of stuff. Uh, and then Microsoft announced uh, this cool thing called Office 365. And Everybody was like, oh, subscription, how dare you? Like, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll buy our CD every three years to heck with you. Um, but I think early on, I kind of recognized they were taking a very Apple approach to this, right? Because Apple was well known being like, oh, we're taking the disk drive out of our laptops. And everyone like just got pissed. Like, how dare you would do such a thing? Um, but they, they were ahead of its time. They understood that software was going to be delivered via the cloud. Right? Who you don't need a CD anymore. You're just gonna subscribe to it. You're just gonna download it. Um, and obviously, as I got into Office 365 and started playing around with it, uh, that's where Azure AD came into play. Started playing around with identity and Azure AD, and obviously that led me over to Microsoft Azure and started playing around in the cloud more. And so I eventually left the job uh, that I was working at at the time, which was as a network. Uh, security engineer for a company here in South Carolina and started doing solution architecture for cloud, um, specifically Microsoft Azure. And I bounced around uh, to some various consultancies doing things around Azure, um, pre-sales solution architecture, uh, running um, a small Azure delivery team. And then now uh, at Trace3, where I've been the last two and a half years, serving as their Azure Cloud Evangelist, and then eventually running a team that focused specifically on cloud strategic alliances. How do we bring technologies that complement the cloud to you know, broader industries and partners and build go-to-market solutions to uh, now I run the Azure practice for Trace3. So that's that's been my journey. It's been 15 years. So you've said a number of things that I yes. want to dig a bit deeper into okay. in this. But firstly, you made me feel very old, so thank you. Um, <laughs> you said you were six years old using Windows 3.11. And in my brain, I'm like, that was the thing I was using whilst I was at work in my first job. Um, and then you were talking about moving to the cloud. And I was like, oh, okay. 
Um, I guess the first topic is the cloud, right? So I, I, I've never liked the term, right? I'm going to be honest, and I've probably said this before, and, and, but we're not very good with the way we call changes, I don't think, in technology. And, and to me, like you, you, the cloud, like you've called it private cloud, and, and I was like, well, private cloud surely is just my data center. So I never really liked the term. And I think for what felt like quite a large period of time, there didn't feel like anyone was actually moving. And I mean, I slightly take the likes of Office 365 and put them to the side because I think that that had more growth than maybe some areas. Um, but it certainly felt like maybe a little bit before the pandemic, a year, 18 months before the pandemic. And then during the pandemic, it, it did go crazy. And I, I don't think that's necessarily going to change but we do hear stories about people leaving the cloud and going back on prem um so i guess my question is are people still moving or are they going into the cloud or are they going out of the cloud and the reason i ask that is because every company i ever talk to says they're a cloud first but what does that actually mean what what are people what are you um, doing oh gosh this is this is a loaded question um, are people still going to the cloud? Yes, absolutely. A lot of organizations are. Um, I, I think the term cloud first now applies to organizations who are thinking about how they go about their IT operations, right? I think that what really what the cloud showed us is how we can be more efficient with how we run our infrastructure or you know and our applications. It's not necessarily a great because the cloud still is somebody else's data center but we were never were going to call it that we weren't just going to be like oh yay this is new technology called someone else's data center so we had to call it something um and whether you like the term cloud or not um and and private cloud right it really just means it's my cloud where it's hosted it could be on you know microsoft's infrastructure it could be on amazon's infrastructure i just don't give anyone else access to it but me um or you know people i trust but I think the way people say they're cloud first is, hey, I am leading with automation. I am leading with uh, the ability to deploy my applications, deploy my infrastructure in a fashion that is very repeatable. It is not filled with a lot of human error. And I can quickly spin up and spin down what I need in a fashion that makes me very nimble and flexible. Um, and so to me, that's what really is cloud first. Whether that infrastructure is in my four walls or in somebody else's four walls is irrelevant because there are technologies now that can move applications and move data to any one of those things. So it doesn't necessarily have to live on that. Now, are people what they we like to call repatriation, right? Are they taking workloads out of the public cloud arena and moving it back to on-prem? Yes, 100%. Because the pandemic you know, really was this weird inflection point in human history where everyone obviously was not going into an office. So we had to slap band-aids on a solution of, hey, we got to give people access to something and they all are, you know, somewhere, not in a building that I know and control. And that's fine. And what's happened is, is people went there obviously in a very haphazard and quick fashion. And so they're realizing through, you know, costs and other very painful exercises that it's not very efficient for what those workloads are. And that's fine. Um, the cloud isn't for everyone. It's not for every workload. And that's not a problem. 
Um, and so kind of what we are seeing is, is COVID raised that bar to like some 800% capacity, right? It was something ridiculous high. And now, you know, we're coming down from that 800% down to like two or 300%. And everyone's freaking out like, oh, everyone, you know, clouds under, you know, everyone's running away from it. There's all these issues and it's no, we're just, we as an organization as an industry are rebalancing ourselves. So all that kind of excess stuff just isn't needed. And so we're kind of shifting it back to where it belongs. Yeah, I think you you nailed it there in terms of the repatriation, because a lot of it's just been loud people uh, complaining that uh, the cloud costs are too high or their applications don't run properly. And uh, once you start to scratch the surface, you realize that either it's a very repeatable application um, or it's one where people lifted and shifted and, and didn't do the organizational changes that they needed to, as well as the the financial mechanisms uh, that they needed to you know put into place going from a more CapEx oriented to a more OpEx oriented or um, as a service type model. Um, are you still seeing a lot of people still moving and, and talking about how do I transform my applications to more cloud or applications? And as well, um, what are they doing about security? Is, is, is security a focus for them as well? Um, <clears throat> security still, I think, remains probably the biggest focus for a lot of people. And I apologize, I'm still fighting off a cold here. Um, but the cloud is, you know, it's gotten better, right? We've innovated a lot from the cloud, I think, from a lens of a security perspective. Whereas in recent, you know, recent past, we're like, oh, the cloud is inherently insecure. Don't go there. To where now security is really identified more as a benefit from the cloud and the things that we can do. And We've taken those lessons learned and right, and how to, again, same thing with the infrastructure. How do we apply that more broadly? And so I think people are seeing, you know, from a security lens, there are things that we can do, you know, zero trust, SASE, defense in depth, all those sorts of things can be applied universally. And people are taking a more, I think, focused approach on how best do I leverage services that make my application more resilient, more available to my end users in my organization and my customers, right? Externally. And so there's been this kind of cost efficiency balance of, okay, VMs where as everyone went to the cloud, I think accounted for like 70%, 80% of all cloud spend. And so that's coming down and we're starting to see the other side, right? The platform services, the serverless, um, those sorts of things that's coming up. And I think over the next couple of years, we're expected to see, <clears throat> excuse me, um, a much larger growth in that area versus the traditional lift and shift. So you, you mentioned zero trust. Um, I, I had exactly this question asked me a, a few weeks ago and I, I won't give you my answer until maybe after you've given yours, but somebody said to me, is zero trust applicable when you consider the cloud? What would you say to that? Um, it is. It, it's 100% applicable because you have the ability, right? <clears throat> From a cloud provider perspective, I think what people will think of, oh, because you don't have full control of the environment that you somehow can't implement 
zero trust, right? Because you're inherently trusting the cloud provider, but you know that going in, right? If I'm going to leverage the cloud, I've already said, hey, I'm going to trust Amazon, or I'm going to trust Google, or I'm going to trust Microsoft with some of these things. What the cloud providers do is, hey, they provide you, hopefully relatively transparently, Microsoft still has got to work on that a little bit, right? Let's be honest. They've had a few mess ups recently. Um, but they try to provide you as transparently as possible, as much information about what they're doing from a security perspective behind the scenes, whether it's meeting SOC type two, you know, NIST, et cetera, et cetera, like all those fun things. But they give you a wealth of controls at your fingertips. And I think what people forget or what people haven't done a good job of is understanding that they are the ones that can pull those controls and you can help implement really good network segmentation. You can help institute good identity access management controls and make sure that you're doing access reviews and just in time access. And the problem is, is there's that laundry list of things that you can implement from a zero trust policy. Uh, the problem is, is you've got a team of like two or three people who are expected to do these 50 things and they just they don't have enough time to get around with it because on top of the 50 things they've got to spend day-to-day -day firefighting 50 other things and so it just it is applicable but i think from an overall implementation perspective and how we roll it out unless you're a really large enterprise you don't have the bodies you don't have the skills you don't have the requisite people to constantly throw at that. And so where a lot of these attacks potentially are coming from and what's stopping people, I think more broadly adopting zero trust is just, you know, they don't have enough people, they don't have the skill and they don't have the time and they want somebody to do it for them. And there's been this big marketing misnomer, right? There are a lot of security organizations are like, oh, we do zero trust. But zero trust is a process. It is a methodology. It is not a product. So as much as I love, I won't name any names, uh, the you know various security products, when they tell you they do zero trust, they don't actually do it, right? You have to implement it with their technologies. It's not something that they'll do for you. And that's kind of where we're having kind of that struggle. Same thing with like DevOps, right? Everyone's like, oh, I do DevOps. But again, DevOps is a people process thing. Uh, versus more of a technology. Thing. You know, you brought up two things there, DevOps and, and you know, zero trust. Both of them are really philosophies. They're, they're strategies to implement. Um, yeah. And I think the barrier, and, and you called it out, is, is resourcing, uh, which means prioritization, uh, which also means that the business isn't focused on this. This isn't a revenue generating yeah. project. It's um, it, it certainly was one to reduce risk, but it's one that takes a long time to implement. And unfortunately, in this world we live in where businesses are measured, if you're uh, you know, in the stock market on a quarterly basis, trying to keep that attention span uh, maintained and, and not reprioritizing resources to another project uh, is the difficult challenge. Um, have you seen any methods to help move a zero trust project forward? Um, especially with cloud or keep that mentality within an organization. Are there any tips or, or cheat codes that you might be able to offer? Um, I, I, you know, there's no shortcuts, right? 
Um, I say that about life. I say that about a lot of other things. Um, so if the organization wants to truly implement zero trust or truly implement, like you said, DevOps, you have to put in the time and the effort. Um, and I think overall, yes, companies are judged by that quarterly, monthly stock ticker. Um, but I'll, I'll highlight a recent public example. Do you think MGM would have invested the time to implement zero trust if it meant not losing $60 million a day for the last, what, 15, 20 days? Yeah. One day would have paid for a zero trust implementation, but they didn't, right? And so I think that's where companies, that's kind of the, the cheat code is you don't realize that you should do this something until you actually feel the financial pain of not doing it. And the problem is, is by the time you feel that, you're already too late. And, and we as a industry, we as a um, community have probably banged that drum as loud as we can to say, hey, you guys need to do this. Um, what we're finally seeing, right, is public pressure for companies to start doing this. And I think that to me is the ultimate cheat code is you've, you're starting to see world governments right uh, at a at a federal level, at a state level, at a local level, say, hey, if you get hacked, you got to start reporting it. Not in six months, you've got six days. You better tell us what 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 happened, what went wrong, right? How are you going to fix it? Oh, by the way, um, now that you guys are deploying all this code, I need to see right the list. What went into making that code? Is there vulnerabilities in there? Right. So we've started seeing mindsets change on people who can actually enact policy to force organizations to start putting money in zero trust, putting money in implementing defense in depth and other things. And so that's, I think the one thing we as a community, as an industry have lacked over the last five, seven, you know, decade now is governments were always so far behind and understanding what that was is, you know, real meaningful policy was always too late, right? public or private companies had already moved on from when people are like, oh yeah, don't do this. And it's like, yeah, we left that five years ago, like you guys just now. So I think as hopefully as, you know, we continue to advance in technology, you know, and hopefully governments will continue to keep up. And especially in this world of AI, um, you know, change is going to accelerate even further. And so it's, it's behoven on us as a community to hopefully educate the people who can enact that policy, who can then turn, right, enact the necessary things on the, these larger organizations to say, hey, you need to do this, right? And the other thing a lot of organizations now that's been a good driver is cybersec insurance, right? It used to be to get cybersec insurance, you just needed a check mark like three boxes and you're like, hey, you're insured. Now that's like 30 pages deep. And so now people, right, organizations have to be more prescriptive about how they implement their security. And I think those are good things, right? It's It's been slow and it's sucked, quite honestly, um, but it's coming along. And I think as we continue to move forward, right, we'll see more organizations do that. As for internally, I think the best thing I can advise an organization is, look, if you want to implement better security, uh, especially from a cloud perspective, we've seen the best thing to do is implement something like a cloud center of excellence, have a single body of groups of individuals across the organization, right? So you have multiple points of view, multiple stakeholders that have different stakes in the business 
saying, okay, hey, this is what matters to me. This is what, you know, implementing these controls will affect me, what this will do for me. This is how this will help me. And kind of having that democratization of capability. And that way, when a center of excellence puts out a recommendation for the business, right? It's not coming from IT being like, oh, yay, we know everything, right? It's coming from a broad swath of leaders who say, yeah, this is the HR lead. This is the finance lead. This is the IT lead. This is the dev lead. This is the security lead. They all say, do this, right? So you're not pointing a finger at one person. You're not pointing it at the VP of IT or the VP of security, right? The other people who have huge stakes in the business are also saying, yeah, this needs to be done. And so you'll get more broader, I think, culture adoption for those changes if you have something like that. Do do you think that the concept of zero trust as strategy is going to help people move towards the cloud? Or do you think it's going to hinder? And that's a that's a very leading question because I have a, a <laughs> reason in, in my head. But do you um, think it's going to be more of an enabler or a disabler? I, I think it'll be more of an enabler, in my personal opinion, um, because I think what we've seen is zero trust is a lot of, much like the cloud center of excellence, right? It's a central policy engine that's placing policies dispersely, right? So no matter where you are, what you're doing, you know, where you are in the world, right? That security is being enforced on that user, on that device, on that storage, on that whatever, um, irregardless of where it's living. And that's important because the cloud, right, is essentially everywhere that a cloud provider has built the data center. Um, so, which is quite a lot of places. But uh, yeah, I, ultimately, that's kind of one of the cruxes of zero trust is having kind of that central um, capability to um, decentralize, right? Which is a weird concept to think of. You need a central body to decentralize policies out to everything uh, from that perspective. But yeah, I think ultimately that's what will help drive cloud adoption. Because if you know that you have all these policies protecting all these different assets, irrespective of where you live, because that was the biggest scary thing about cloud is you didn't know what was up there, where it was being stored, where it was being accessed from, all that sorts of good stuff. So if you have those policies and those controls in place and you can know that you're going to trust it, but you're going to really make sure that you know that user is who they are, right? They validated um they have the right permissions etc cetera, etc cetera. see i um, i see you can relax a little bit well well i see certainly now in today's world the world we live in today i i see the cloud as an opportunity of tidying up some of the sins of the past i've always felt that you couldn't just lift and shift with the cloud you couldn't just go big bang and i think that's possibly where people made mistakes I think if you move to more kind of SaaS-based applications, instead of just picking up your virtual infrastructure and moving it into one of the cloud vendors, then I, then I think that's the best way of doing it. And, and if you have in mind zero trust and you have in mind the other legislation that you, that you need to follow, then there, for me, it's an opportunity of cleaning up. And I definitely think if you're... Depending on what vertical you're in, I think some verticals will find it easier to move towards the cloud. Technology companies, for instance, live and breathe that every day. I came from a manufacturing background and it was hard. We had terabytes of data that we had to store. We had to take pictures of everything and log everything. And it was relatively hard. And there was, a, a again, cloud first. It was a push and, and they really wanted me to just take 
my virtual environment and move it. And, and when I sat down and said, do you realize what this is going to cost to do that? And then if you need all this data out again for any reason, you realize what that's going to cost. Um, but for me, I think we're in a very pivotal point in, in kind of IT and security that we're finally getting technologies that can help us meet some of these goals that we've had for 10, 20, 30 years. It, we, we finally are getting to that point where we can make this shift. And if we're smart about it, we can use the move to clean up some of those sins of the past. Um, John, I don't know what you think. Well, I mean, we we talked about it a little bit, the sins of the past. And, you know, you brought up MGM and uh, $60 million a day that they lost because, well, they didn't weren't thinking ahead or uh, didn't see the opportunity there to invest or, you know, whatever reason it was. Um, but it's unfortunate that uh, a lot of these so-called cleanups and, and these moves uh, to a, a more secure model of, of computing, a more secure model of IT happen after the fact. They happen post-breach. Um, I was in a, a conference uh, maybe a month or so ago where two gentlemen got up on stage and they were raving about their move to the cloud and and how, you know, made them more secure, uh, how they're, you know, uh, more efficient in terms of IT operations. And the question came up, well, what started this? We got breached. That was their answer. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate, but that opens up the checkbook. And uh, we learn after the fact that uh, we should have done a better job and, and uh, businesses tend to do that. And it's, it's, it's that reactionary uh, thinking that, you know, keeps pushing us ahead. Or it could be we lifted and shifted and now we got this, you know, bill from AWS and we're like, what the heck? Um, yeah, we need to refactor our applications for the cloud. Um, now, you're also a, a, a bit of an evangelist uh, for cloud, for, for Azure, I suspect. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about that role? And um, I think in terms of how do we get the information out there and, and the best practices out there around cloud and, and around zero trust as a strategy, um, how does that, uh, that conversation go when you, you know, you're in engagement or you're meeting somebody and you're, you're trying to get it across that if you're going to make this move, these are the things you need to be thinking about? Yeah, no, uh, that's a great question. I, I've been a biggest believer of you need to evangelize it to the people who actually have the hands-on keyboard. And most people look at me and they're like, why, why would you ever do that? Like they don't make the decisions. That's true. They don't but they have to implement those decisions. And the problem is every manager's nightmare is having to force their people to do something they don't want to do, right? Nobody wants to do it because you, you have, to, and you know, I speak from being a manager myself, you have this gut feeling of, oh, if I force my people to do this, they just may tell me, you know what, the heck with you, I'm gone. And then you have no one. And so I think that's kind of the bind we have to put some of these companies in and evangelize to a lot of the, the, the individual contributors, right? And say, hey, these are the way these things go about doing it. So when a company or somebody tries to come to the manager who has the buying decision and says, hey, you should do bad choice X. And everybody on that manager's team says, that's a bad choice. We're not going to do this. 
Is he really going to want to expend the immense political capital to try and force his team to do that? No. He's going to look at it and be like, yeah, my team's telling me take a hike. So no. Right. So that's where I think we've got to instill the best practices in is in the people I think, you know, that matter the most. And that's the ICs, right? Because I think they have more power than they realize. Yes, they don't have the buying decisions, but without them, the organization's implementing nothing, not getting anything done. And so as we espouse best practices, as we espouse, you know, kind of the better way to do things when it comes to adopting cloud, refactoring applications to the cloud, right? The six R's, right? Rehost, refactor, rearchitect, retire, replace. Those are the people where that goes. And yeah, it's through, for better or for worse terms, social media. It's got the biggest reach. There's half the world's population is on social, fun form of social media, whether it be TikTok, Instagram, X, right? LinkedIn, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I hate that I can't use company X anymore because now I have to say company Y because if I say company X, everyone thinks I'm thinking of talking about Twitter. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's through them, right? It, you know, and reaching out to them and showing them like, hey, they're, here's this easy way to do it. And it, it's hard because, you know, it's, it's slowly starting to get better as I think the workforce changes, right? And, um, but there's still a lot of the people in leadership are still kind of of that older mentality, right? That legacy stuff that we're trying to get rid of. And it's hard to, um, you know, change mindsets when this is the way we've been doing it for 20, 30 years. Why the heck do I need to change now? Right. And so, you know, kind of moving those people along and there've been plenty of studies that have shown, um, you know, younger executives, younger managers, right. They are far and above more willing to adopt cloud, to adopt more bleeding edge technology, to kind of push that envelope. Um, I think it's, it's some crazy percentage, like 73% more um, than, than what executives under 40 versus ones that are over. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's, it's getting there, right? We just have to keep targeting the, the people, the ICs, right? Because they're eventually going to move up, right? They're going to move into those managerial roles, those decision maker roles. And when we've armed them with the right knowledge, right, they're going to help clean up that mess and, and, and get that. And, and the best case scenario I have, and this is a real world story, not around technology, but around where I live. Um, when I first moved to South Carolina, um, there, I, I, I live in between two cities, Greenville, Spartanburg, Greenville, fantastic, uh, great downtown, you know, everything's really nice, lovely area, lots of trees. Um, and I remember my boss at the time driving me around. He's like, yeah, this is Greenville, like all this awesome. And then he drove me over to downtown Spartanburg, similar, like downtown in terms of like lots of buildings boarded up nobody there, like hardly anyone walking the streets, like just complete whatever. And I asked him like, why, why so different, right? Almost 180. And he said, because most of the city council is, is of, you know, of an older generation and they passed laws that made it cheaper to just own buildings and do nothing with them, right? No renovation, no investment, no nothing. Well, I've been here eight years now. Now, if you walk in downtown Spartanburg, it looks identical to downtown Greenville because leadership changed out, right? That younger generation came in, they started making it good for investment. They made it good to start cleaning up kind of those sins of the past. And now downtown Spartanburg is, is very vibrant, 
lots of businesses, lots of people walking around, lots of fun things to do, you know, parks, et cetera, et cetera. So very similar to IT, right? It's a very good parallel in that that's kind of the same mentality is we got to bring along that generation that we know will come in and help kind of clean that stuff up. And so that's kind of, we're just kind of in that in-between phase right now. But- I, I think you've hit on some really good points there. I mean, it's about incentives, right? I mean, if there's no incentive to change, I mean, I IT did. people are a little bit reluctant to change anyway. I mean, m- most of us have spent 10, 15, 20 plus years, or or even if you're entering, you've spent time getting certified, learning, whether that's learning cloud, whether that's learning networking, whether that's getting a broader range of skills, you've learned that. The last thing you want is for then the rug to be pulled out from under you and you have to go on that ever kind of that treadmill of, of learning. Um- so, 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 I would disagree with that statement. All right, that that mentality shifted. Right, we've now learned that IT is about continuous learning, continuous yep. education. So, yes, you may have learned something ten years ago, but because things have now moved and accelerated so fast, yes, every year, every two years, it's changing. That's why Microsoft requires you to get recertified every year. AWS requires every two. Uh, I think Google's every two as well. So, and and other folks are kind of of a similar mindset. So we've entered a phrase and right and people always ask what makes people so successful, right? When we look at the Tom Brady's of the world and the Kobe Bryant's and the Magic Johnson's, right? Pick sports figure X whatever. One of the first things they tell you is they have a relentless yeah. drive, a relentless almost killer instinct to continue educating themselves, to continue learning. And IT it's no different, right? We cannot just be like, "Oh, I learned this 10 years ago, so that must still hold true today." No right? That's not how it is in the real world. That's not how it is in our world. And so we have to always be constantly ingesting new information. And I'm, and I'm not saying it's easy by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it's hard. I've, I've got three kids. Um, I've got, you know, home life and all that stuff. And, you know, I make, but I make the time, yeah. right? People always ask me that question. How do you stay up to date? How do you keep learning? If you love and you're passionate about something, it's not about finding the time. It's about making the time because it I think, matters. I think right? that's and if definitely IT... the key thing, right? I mean, I love doing what I do. Um, and and I think we have to in the world we live in. We, we talk on this podcast about burnout and mental health. And mm-hmm. and, I, and I think we, we live in a, an environment where many of us are very, very passionate about what we do. And, and to the point where we maybe even do it in excess. We, we maybe don't we don't oh, take our 100%. foot off the gas as much as we should we don't put the phone down as much as we should we don't get as much fresh air because fundamentally many of us kind of fell into this world because it was a hobby you you started when you were six years mm-hmm. old i yep. got into it through gaming john got into it in the way john got into it it's like we've all so it's that balance and i i love <laughs> learning i mean i've constantly done certifications and picked up and even today i still do those things and are passionate about what i do um but i think the world definitely went for a period of time where it moved really really quickly i mean it's always moved at a certain pace but the pandemic i think we literally went from yeah it literally accelerated stuff at, and, and and that's the thing though it ex, it, it was a once in a lifetime event it accelerated it like no other event will do I think in our lifetime, um, but you know, to a certain extent, our the previous generation experienced a similar event, right? Um, yeah. 
I love history. I'm a huge history buff. Uh, I've always told people that when I retire from IT, I'm going to go teach history somewhere um, because I love it. And right after World War II, you know, we literally bombed out of existence the industrial capacity of every other major nation you can think of, right? When we think of today of all the biggest industry producing countries outside of the United States, majority of them, we bombed out of existence and we had to rebuild them. So for a period of time, us and maybe, you know, the UK and a, you know, a handful of other countries were the only nations capable of producing manufacturing. And so we had this unique two decade window, what they call the golden age of manufacturing, where that's, that's all America and some of these other countries did because we, we, no other country had the capacity to do it. And as those countries finally got rebuilt and came back in, right, they, they took the lessons learned from us, right, and they started doing it better. And so that's kind of a similar mindset here is like, we've entered this kind of almost golden age of IT, right? And, and the pandemic kind of helped accelerate that showing like, hey, here's all this stuff possible. And now, you know, right, AI has been unleashed on the world and all that stuff. And so we were kind of in this next industrial revolution. And, and I want to be crystal clear, like I, uh, AI is at a level of a toddler, okay? We're talking about an omnipotent toddler. And that's a scary thought. And I get where people are like, oh, da, da, da. but um, it's a unique opportunity for us to help kind of guide and shape that, right? When we think of our own kids, um, you want them to experience things. You want to be, you know, hands off to an extent, but just provide them, you know, guardrails like, hey, here's just kind of the general rules, but go in that direction and figure things out. And that's kind of a similar approach we need to take with AI is like, hey, you do all these fantastic things. Here's kind of these little boundaries, but go explore, go see what we can do. What things can we solve? What things can we really help, you know, from a, a betterment perspective, right? Are, are people always going to use it for bad things? Of course, right? We're, we're human beings. We're, we're not perfect. We, we do things for bad reasons. It's, we've got centuries of history to, to showcase that. Um, but, you know, I believe that, you know, we can outweigh that with a lot of good. So, um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, future in this world, you know, is only going to get better and better for at least from an IT perspective, as we kind of take that mindset of what else can I learn? What else can I consume and gain knowledge about, and then apply to help solve cool challenges. I, we, we, I co-host a event called Azure back to school in September. And one of our presenters came on and I remember, you know, hosting that one and she developed this cool AI vision algorithm to detect an eye disease, right? For third world countries. Five years ago, that wasn't possible. Yeah. And here we are today where she could deploy that application in, you know, regions of the world that otherwise wouldn't have access to that because of AI, because of the cloud and, and help solve a real challenge for people to help make their lives better. Like that's, that to me was like, just absolutely the coolest story. Um, so yeah, that, that like more of that is what I'm hoping. So, so I have this. one more cloud-based question before we kind of pivot to some fun okay. stuff. Um, All right. Where does it go next? What's next for the cloud? <laughs> oh, what's next for the cloud? Um, oh, um, I, I, I think what's next for the cloud is obviously AI, but the more so I think how do we keep becoming more efficient, right? Um, a lot of the cloud is constantly pushing the envelope of what's possible. And what we 
to a certain extent to our own fault, don't always kind of come back and make sure that we we took all the right steps when implementing some of those new things. And so I think as we continue to go forward with the cloud, right, it's it's about, to your point, right, cleaning up some of those past mistakes, um, making those application cloud native services that, you know, help deliver those, right, more efficient, more robust, more resilient, um, and, and kind of truly help drive meaningful impact in people's lives. Um, so yeah, I, I, that's where I see cloud going for over the next kind of three to five years, right, is, is really kind of showcasing native capabilities to deliver applications to anyone and everyone, right, in a, in a fashion where um, it's it's always going to be available to you. And obviously, right, more AI, right? What, what challenges, what fun things can we solve with AI? Um, maybe, you know, watches became a thing, right? We always joke that that would never happen where you have a little communicator. So maybe lenses will come back, right? We've seen uh, some applications around having wearable glasses with touch stuff. Um, so yeah, maybe, you know, next five years, people will be sporting, you know, shades that you can call somebody or do something. I'd like, like to come back and circle back with you and see where we are in, in a year or so. <laughs> um, but I understand uh, you've also yeah. got a Who podcast, knows? right? Oh, yes, we do. Uh, we just launched our first episode in honor of Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Uh, so we touch on uh, myself and my co-host, Kevin Evans, uh, who's a friend. He works for Microsoft up in Canada. So yeah, we touch on you know the MGM hack. We talk about kind of what happened around MGM and Caesars. You know what are kind of some of the lessons learned based off you know the report that they filed with the SEC uh, here in America and and you know why security matters, right? Why does security impact what we do on a day to day basis? And you know one of the analogies we we talk about is. Um, taking you back in time, right? 2001 and it, the remake, right? I'll preface by saying remake of Ocean's Eleven. If you've ever seen the original with the, the Rat Pack, uh, kudos to you, but I don't want to make you feel super old. Um, I've, I've seen it. I'm not that old, but I've seen it. Uh, but, right, we we kind of sensationalized robbing casinos, right? We we saw George Clooney and Matt Damon and Brad Pitt and we're like, oh yeah, go, go take that money from the Raj the Bellagio and the MGM grant. And it's funny that I've talked to other people, but when I talk to them about that hack, they're like, that's immediately where my head went when I saw MGM and Caesars. And I'm like, they're like, did the Mirage get hit too? <laughs> right. Is, is Terry, Terry Benedict. Okay. Um, but, but that's kind of the, we don't consider the real world impact. I think from a culture perspective, right. Hollywood has sensationalized con men and, and kind of these bad actors to an extent um, about stealing. And, and I had the, the fortunate, I guess, happenstance to be in Vegas barely a week after the hack occurred. And I got to see firsthand what that impact meant to people. Um, you know, you're talking about people who vacation there, who, you know, their livelihood depends on doing those sorts of things. And all that got ripped away, right? Think about maybe a family who's traveling internationally, who spent all this money just to come to Vegas for a week and enjoy stuff. Right. I don't know what they're, you know, what they choose to do, but that could be their only vacation for years. And for them to come after that got hacked and basically have everything be all for naught, like that's, that's a serious impact. And so, um, 
you know, that's, that's kind of the side of security. I don't, you know, inside of Hollywood kind of sensationalizing that, that we never really truly considered. And now that it's happened, you know, I think we need to take a hard look at our culture and say, you know, yes, it's nice to kind of do movies and highlight some of those other things, but I think we need to consider what the potential real world implications are and, and how do we help, right? Enable policymakers, enable people to make sure that, you know, those things are done and secure. And, and even to this day, security has what 23 million open vacancies, right? And the, the likelihood of them getting filled is, is hard. And so part of what we want to do with the podcast and why we call it security without borders is, is kind of twofold. One, security knows no borders, right? I don't, even if I'm in the United States, right? Security still has to be done over in France and Germany and, you know, Ukraine and other places, right? It, it doesn't matter. Geopolitical borders are irrelevant. Um, you know, China's hacking us constantly. Borders don't care, you know, giant ocean doesn't matter. Um, but the other thing is domains, right? There's an infinite number of security domains, whether it's infrastructure, identity, data, right? So we want to talk about security across all those different things. So irregardless of where you live, what domain you want to focus in, um, we want to help kind of highlight with real world stories about people who've been in it, what they've experienced, right? What are kind of some of the things to really help galvanize those individual contributors of like, yeah, being in security is cool. I can really do something. I can be passionate about it and make an impact, not only for myself, but right stuff out there in the real world. Like how cool would it be to hypothetically, right, have been the security person who identified that MGM hack and prevented yeah. it before it even happened. Like, that would have been like, how juiced would you have been? Like, you could have been like, yeah, that's me. I could put that on my resume as the guy who found the hack and saved X whatever. Um, so yeah, so that's ultimately the goal of the podcast. So, you know, episode one is out now on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, whichever you guys so choose. Uh, we've got some fun guests lined up. Uh, coming up for episodes two and three that are known hackers. And so they'll talk about uh, their experiences. One is a people hacker. So how do you psychologically hack a person? And another is how do you actually hack stuff? Um, so yeah, it'll be a lot yeah, of fun. I, I mean, I love listening to podcasts. So thank you very much. I'm glad to have another one on my list. Mm -hmm. um, let's pivot <laughs> to fun questions. And John, you go first. Okay. Yeah, so um, obviously you're in the South, South Carolina. Yes. Um, food in South Carolina. If, uh, if I were to show up at your doorstep and go, you know, show me show me a great meal, uh, what would it be? Uh, if I were to show you a great meal, uh, it, it, God, it'd have to be barbecue. South Carolina has such great barbecue. I love it. Um, can't go wrong there. Fortunately, we're not close enough to Charleston, which is one of the food meccas of, of the United States. Um, and there's a lot of great food down there, especially if you, you know, like seafood and some other things, but yeah, up, up where I live, um, yeah, I, I could take you to some mean barbecue joints and then they are really good. <laughs> okay. So I have one nice. food related question as well. Um, okay. Should you have a pineapple on pizza? My wife will tell you yes. <laughs> so I will I will stick with that answer. Oh, I'm not sure you're in the I'm not sure you're in the right answer. Uh, <laughs> the right answer. Uh, yeah, no, she loves pineapple on pizza. Uh I, I am not necessarily a fan of it, but uh she she loves it. And you know, to each their own, right? Everybody yep. loves pizza. Each to their, their own, own even if they're way. wrong. 
I, I'll give you an example. Um, my daughter was, what, three years old? And she still eats this today. Uh, she'll dip watermelon in ketchup. Weirdest thing. I know. Like I said, they're like, what are you mm. doing? But she, she loves own. it. So, you know, it is, it is what it I'd, is. I'd, I'd like to thank you for coming on. It's been great, a great conversation. <laughs> um, even if your wife does yeah. have pineapple on pizza, I know that you don't. So that's a positive thing. Yeah. Um, anything from you, John, to wrap? No, it's, it's great. I'm, I'm glad we got to, to talk some cloudy stuff and security um, and alignment. And I love the analogy, uh, that you, the historical analogy that you, you came up with regarding uh, the end of World War II. So uh, awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this discussion, please give The Edge a like and a follow on your favorite podcast service. And also connect with the SSC Forum on LinkedIn. Get all the latest updates and news on the phenom known as the Security Service Edge.